Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome along to Second Captains at the Irish Times, show number one of the week. I'm ready to go. Murph, you're ready, I hope? I'm ready as hell, on Ready as hell. Ken, Sorry you're the sitting cursing, there in front of your microphone. Looks like you're ready to do some broadcasting. Yes, ready. Good. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty good weekend. Would have been a lot better if Leinster and Ulster had won, I guess. But a great win for Munster, who looked suitably delighted with themselves. Not everybody who won big over the weekend yeah. seemed to be as happy. I don't know if people watched the Grand National, but... The jockey who won was a Kildare man, Leighton Aspel is his name, Ken. Mm-hmm. He rode a superb race, won uh, a somewhat surprising victory, well, tw- uh, 25 to 1 or something, not a total outsider, but uh, achieved the biggest moment of his career. Uh, I found out afterwards when they started talking more about Leighton Aspel that he, the story gets better. He had retired a few years back mm-hmm. and only came back maybe in the last year, 18 months, and is riding better than he's ever done. Essentially realised after... Like Lance Armstrong. Not like Lance Armstrong. Not, like, <laughs> not quite like Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong's comeback didn't work quite as well. No, he wasn't riding better than he ever had before. That's where it broke down. Yeah, unfortunately for big Lance. Hmm. But Leighton Aspel uh, had all this joy in him, I'm sure. Just refused to show with anybody. He was trotting along there on his horse. I was thinking, he, doesn't, he looks incredibly chilled out. Hmm. And then the interviewer, the first thing he said to him, was you look very chilled out, very relaxed about this. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just starts going on and on about the minute of the race, which I suppose is what you want. You want to know what he was thinking going over certain hurdles. But a little bit of joy, I would have thought, was yeah. okay, but it's fine. It doesn't matter. Leighton Aspel is the Grand National. I kind of thought maybe like that he might have been in shock or something. But There, then could, there could be a certain amount of that, yeah. Well, yeah, but then the more I watched of him, the more I thought, well, no, actually, this guy's just... He's just really chilled he's just, out. He's just chilled out. He's just reserved. It's okay. Yeah. He hopped off the horse. He just starts taking the saddle off, working away. As though he'd literally just been out in the gallops and hadn't won a Grand National for himself. Yeah. Remi- it reminded me, Ken. Well, it didn't remind me of this because I saw the second part of this yeah. story later on. Joe Ledley's mm. non-celebration. This is more of a pointed non-celebration now. Ledley, playing for Crystal Palace, scores a goal against Cardiff. Then does that thing they all do now. Shane Long did it a couple of weeks ago mm. for uh, Hull. Or... Uh, uh, yeah, four yeah, against West Brom, yeah. where they make this ostentatious, ostentatious display of "I'm not celebrating." Mm. So the hands, almost like that, calm down, calm down kind of gesture yeah. to the rest of the team. It's, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that non-celebration has now become a celebration in its own right. Mm. And I, for one, welcome this new development. I've been wrestling with this over the last couple of days. I think that players should take that to extremes now. You know, mm. they should literally go around and apologize to former teammates. Yeah, I'm, really, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry for doing my professional Tiger Woods. Should personally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Should per- have a personal Tiger Woods length apology. Take over the intercom, yeah. basically. I would like to say that I'm very sorry for my irresponsible and, well, actually deeply professional behaviour in scoring a goal for the team that are paying me to play football. In the case of Ledley, though, you can kind of you can understand it. I mean, Ledley, he's, he's come from Cardiff, from Cardiff and he's relegated them, basically, you know. Yeah. He's just confirmed they're going down. So but, if he was then to, you know, run around the pitch celebrating, it might seem a bit much. Yeah, you know? I actually just have a problem now with the the hand gesture. 
I mean, I've, I've, I'm at peace with the not celebrating. Yeah, I'm but it's the, it's the all out. Look at me. I'm very ostentatiously not making an ostentatious a moment, a moment celebration. Ago, a moment ago, you were suggesting that Leighton Aspel should conform to accepted norms of uh, joyful behaviour uh, after winning the Grand National yeah. instead of just reacting the way that, that Leighton Aspel reacts when something amazing happens in his life. Well, no, Which no, is no, to say, I'm not with saying, calm equanimity. I'm not saying that Leighton Aspel should do something that doesn't make Leighton Aspel comfortable. Yeah. I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is, if I'm watching a sporting event, I like to see the participants showing the joy that Murphy is asking I the would. same thing here. He's asking for a joyous celebration of the Grand National and just maybe a mildly happy celebration of yeah. a goal. Either be happy well, like, like, a pretty important goal for Wait, your you team. Know, yeah. Why have you got so much to celebrate all of a sudden? Who, me? You know, it's not as though scoring a goal or winning a horse race is going to change the world. You know, there's not actually a lot to celebrate out there when you think of it in those terms. It's going to change your world, though. It's not right. going to change the world, but it's going to change Lytton Aspel's world. Well, you know, He's a grand national winner. I'm manoeuvring in relative position to all the other people out there. You know, you're, you're sort of climbing over uh, people's heads on your way up the greasy pole. Well, yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't want to get ugly, morbid here, right? It's an but ugly vision, is all I'm get, saying. I don't want to get morbid here, but I mean, the first line of your obituary has been written there. You know, maybe even for Joe Ledley as well. That's all I'm saying. We're going to be talking Munster very shortly. Yeah, the Heineken Cup in general, but I think we'll have to start with Munster, given that they produced the performance of the weekend, certainly from an Irish point of view. We'll be chatting to Jerry Thorny and to Bernard Jackman in just a couple of minutes' time. And US Murph, I know we talked golf last week with US Murph. Mm -hmm. I think we can justify ourselves in doubling up going two weeks of golf in a row because it is Masters week. Brian Murphy has been in four of these bad boys. I don't know if it's an event you've ever pined to go to or anything like that. I'd like to go. Yeah, I think I'd like to go to the US Masters. I'd like to go once and sample. But see, they say no well, interest whatsoever. Yeah, well, I yeah, I know that you you, you have a long held disdain for the the good people at <laughs> the good people at uh, Augusta National. Ken. Never been, uh, Ken's never been a Hootie Johnson man. That's is he the guy who does the ceremony? He used to end? be. I think he's just finished. Yeah. Billy yeah. Payne has taken over the last couple no, of I years. Just, I just think if I was in that part of the world, I got better things to do than spend four days watching other people play golf. Is there much more to do in Augusta? I don't know Seems if it's obvious. a hive of activity, to be honest. Drive around a little bit. Got a, you know, it's a real, Augusta, sure got a honky tonk bar somewhere in the. <laughs> Augusta, Georgia. This, sorry, you, you no interest in the U.S. Masters, but a honky tonk bar <laughs> really floats your boat. Is that what you're saying? Uh, more so. More so. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you would like to go, I would like to go. Yeah, okay. I would. And uh, you know, it's not like I've got a lot of time for the people who run the U.S. Masters, but I would like to see how they go about their business. That I would be interested to see. Oh, you'd like a behind-the-scenes sideways glance at how yeah, the basically what I'd like is a, run. That'd be amazing. Yeah, a wry sideways take. I actually on the would US like Masters to. I would like I would to. Love. I would like to follow. I don't know. Sam Snead still around? I would like to follow Sam Snead around the Masters, or possibly Billy Payne. Billy, no, Payne. Billy Payne. That'd be more interesting. Forget about a former golfer. You want to follow the yeah. chairman of Augusta National in and around. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think. Uh, I think Billy Payne might be a. Uh, might be a better option there. But, uh, yeah, like, it is brilliant. Like, it is brilliant telly, though. I'm, see, I'm going back on myself now because it is a brilliant television event. And any golfing tournament that you go to, in fairness, you end up seeing about 125th of what's actually going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. On, uh, maybe, can you get back to me later in the well, week? Well, I'll get back to you after we speak to US Mayor for okay. a little while because I'm sure he'll be able to build it up for you. But let's talk Heineken Cup now with Jerry Thorne of the Irish Times and Bernard Jackman, lads. We'll start with the good news. Munster, I know it has been said, Bernard, that Toulouse didn't turn up or whatever, but this was a Heineken Cup quarterfinal against a high-quality French team. Do you have to be a bit wary of taking credit away from Munster? Yeah, for sure. I think there was uh, a massive performance. But once again, it shows how, how Munster can... Um, move up the gear when it comes to Heineken Cup you know last season going away to Harlequins in the quarter final nearly beating Claremont in Montpellier um, and I, I thought I thought Saturday in Thoman Park you know it was, a, it was a really great day another great day in their Heineken Cup kind of history um, the crowd were massive and the players bought into that and, and brought you know huge huge intensity with, with also very very smart um, tactical play you know they hit to, to lose um, in all the in all the channels that that, uh, that they wanted to, and 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 they got huge inroads, and you know they won the fight first of all, and then you know then they had the uh, I suppose the ability and the, um, the firepower to rack up a huge score. So it was a really really impressive performance, and I think you know the, 
the other three teams, you know, who are still in the competition, you know, when they analyse that performance, they'll certainly have have fears about the quality Munster can bring. You talked about the smartness with which they played, Bernard. They certainly look like a very, very well drilled, well coached team. Is it? I don't know if irony is the right word here, but is there something a little odd about the way they're they're uh, the whole Rob Penny plan seems to be coming together brilliantly just as he's on the way out the door. Yeah, it is ironic. I think the thing is, um, you know, Munster were happy with Rob Penny um, and they were very happy to offer him a one-year extension. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit different than a coach being let go in normal circumstances. Munster did want to keep Rob Penny, uh, but they just weren't, I suppose, willing to commit to the two years that he felt um, he deserved and he needed, you know, for security for, for his family. Uh, particularly compared to a three-year contract he, he got in, in Japan. So, um, and in fairness, the players have really bought into into uh, the way he wants to play. Okay, there, there was some, you know, this this quite last year about this wide, wide pattern. But in fairness, that has evolved, you know, and um, they certainly aren't a one-trick pony anymore. They have a nice balance to their play. Um, and in hindsight, when you look back at the Munster Leinster game. You know, if the, ref, if the scrum had been refereed a little bit differently, Munster probably would have won that. You know, which would have been a huge scalp, and we would have been talking about, you know, um, how impressive they are to, to be able to go to, to Dublin and, and, and potentially beat Leinster. Um, so yeah, they, they look they, they look well, well balanced. You know, they lost Peter Manny early, which you know should have been a master blow, but CJ Standard came in and um, was impressive. So I think that they are unified and and they believe in, in what they're about. They believe they're improving and they're going places. And it was just literally the fact that. Um, it was the duration of the contract that probably sees Penny go. But if they were to win the Heineken Cup now, you know, it, it, um, people would be, it'd be a big question mark to ask. But the same thing happened with Ulster getting to the final in 2012 and Brian McLaughlin uh, knew he wasn't going to be in charge. So these things happen in, in sport and players are, you know, they're very focused on, on trying to maximise uh, the chances of success each season, regardless of whether players or coaches are moving on. Jerry, Paul O'Connell afterwards said that he looked almost surprised with how well everything had come off and he did make the point that they aren't always as clinical as they were in this game. But I think there were probably one or two uh, handling errors, one or two mistakes here and there. That There are always things that you can improve on. That said, are you? did Munster show maybe once and for all this new Munster team how good they actually are on Saturday? How, was that as important, how important this game was? That they didn't just win it by a point and squeak home. They actually put in that sort of performance against that calibre of opposition? Absolutely. I mean, when you think of it, viewed in those terms, it's probably their most convincing, complete home win since they annihilated the Ospreys back in 2009. And of course, the word of warning there is what happened three weeks later when they lost the semi-final to uh, Leinster. So there's no guarantees with this. It's quite a high, and sometimes a high in a quarter-final can be a dangerous thing when you go on to the semi-finals. Um, but yeah, it was a very complete performance. They've got that balance right now. As Bernard said, it started to come together. They kind of went back to type in the knockout stages last year. This season, you've got to say they've come on a huge amount and what Rob Penny's tried to bring has added a few strings to their bow and they are a more complete side when they get that superiority right up front, which they did. If you pummel Toulouse, I think Toulouse allowed themselves to be spooked by the ground by the whole occasion. They talked all week about the Thoman Park factor and the Red Army and... Uh, the, the Munster supporters made them made themselves the 16th man by ensuring they got there early. And many other grounds in, in the global game half won the Saturday wouldn't suit, but you know the Munster fans, they knew the importance of the game. They made a point of being there, every seat taken for the, for the warm-ups. And I think Toulouse would just allow themselves to get a bit spooked by the whole occasion. But that being said, yeah, it was a very complete performance and it, it does show the merits of what uh, Rob Penny has brought. I think another factor just a striking factor feature of the weekend really was that Toulouse were the biggest suppliers to the French national team, the Six Nations. Leinster most obviously the bulk suppliers to Ireland and the Six Nations. By comparison, once Peter Manny went up, Munster had only two players who were involved in the Six Nations. And likewise, um, Toulon, not by their checkbook philosophy and buying in global galacticals from all over the world, you know, they only have Matthew Bastero in effect who was involved in the Six Nations. And I thought there was a degree of freshness about the two home sides, Toulon and Munster, that wasn't there in Toulouse and Leinster, who both looked a bit tired. Munster, if they're going to win this Heineken Cup, Jerry will have beaten Toulouse in this quarterfinal. They've already taken care of that. Have to beat Toulon away in Marseille in the semi-final. And either Saracens or probably even more likely Claremont in the final. They've done it in difficult circumstances in the past, but is it possible they could pull this off? And if so, would this be their greatest triumph? I think it would be, yeah, when you think of they, they lost Ronald Gar at the end of the last season. Statistically, the, the, and the, 
certainly the most important player Munster have had in their Heineken Cup history um, and to rally around as they've done with a largely remodeled side which began the process of transition began under Tony McGann and Rob Penny's continued it and you've got to say young players have really improved under his watch I think yeah for them to do this now the path that laid out in front of them because the magnitude of the task that's facing them all was brought out yesterday by what Toulon did to Leinster um, it's helpful perhaps that the match will be moved to the velodrome but the sheer power that Toulon bring the uh, the physicality and the collisions, I mean, they blew Leinster away a bit and it's going, to be, it's going to be a much more difficult task and it's interesting to note that the bookies already make Toulon eight-point favourites, which shows the size of the task ahead of Munster. Yeah, um, Bernard, Rob Penny afterwards did say that he would prefer Leinster and coaches don't normally say that, but I think he's just stating the obvious there. You'd rather a derby in essentially a, a, a neutral type of home venue rather than having to go away and, and play too long. Do Munster have the sort of depth? We saw CJ Stander come in and do a superb job at the weekend. Do they have the kind of depth in their squad that can deal with this match away to Toulon and then potentially with a Heineken Cup final as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge ask. When you see the depth that's, that Toulon, for example, have, I mean, uh, they're missing Joe Van Kirk, Andrew Sheridan, Sebastian Bruno uh, with long-term injuries, but also uh, Brian Abana was on the bench, didn't get a minute, you know, one of the world's best wingers, and, and they're very confident they've got Ali Williams and Bakis Boda to, to come back for that semi-final. Um, you know, and Danny Russo and Suta weren't, weren't too bad. So I think in terms of overall uh, personnel and, and international caps, uh, Toulon have a, have a far better um, depth chart and Claremont possibly as well. But the thing about Munster is that, you know, particularly in the Ireland Cup, you know, guys come in and, and you know, they, they start to create, uh, become legends in, in, in their own way. It doesn't matter what experience they've had before. And collectively, Munster uh, always seem to outperform, you know, the sum of, of the individuals as you expect. And, um, you know, they have real momentum now. It's a huge, huge ask, I think, to be honest, they have a better chance in Marseille than they would in, in Stade Mayol. Um, How did you do it, Bernard? Yeah, Grenoble uh, are the team. It's different. <laughs> it's, uh, listen, we, we, we did it, but listen, I, that's, the, that's the best I've seen Toulon play uh, probably in two seasons that I've been in France. Um, you've got to be unbelievably disciplined and, um, and you've got to just be, I thought of Leinster their tackle technique let them down yesterday you've got to be leg tackle focused uh, and you got you know even the guys who like to tackle a little bit higher you've got to drill into them that week listen this isn't the days to let your ego get in the way you've got to just chop legs chop legs chop legs and the problem for Leinster was that, I mean every time Toulon carried they were getting over the gain line because Leinster were, were tackling high um, and getting bounced off and, and you know it's very very hard against a team like that because once they win one collision you know the second third and fourth are, are, are even harder because they're running onto the ball and you're trying to scrambled back and um, Munster are a leg a leg, fo- a leg uh, focus side in, in terms of defence Munster will back their fitness I mean Leinster's game plan was to play the game at a high tempo um, and and try and test you know Toulon's fitness because obviously they're an older side the top 14 is more of a um, a slug a slug fest rather than a you know fast paced game um, but the problem for Leinster was that they couldn't build enough phases to, to fatigue uh, Toulon because Toulon were very, very good in defence and Toulon were very good at the breakdown. I thought that Leinster never really brought the fight to, to Toulon and I think, even a small thing, it sounds old school or whatever, but Toulon had this brilliant tradition where the crowd uh, assembled two and a half hours before before kickoff, and and the opposition and the and the home team have to walk through the crowd. It's kind of like uh, um, the gladiators enter the Coliseum. And yesterday, you know, I've seen it a few times, but yesterday, the build-up, there was a fever, feverish attitude amongst the fans and the hair in the back of my neck stood up, you know, when Toulon, you know, walked through and you couldn't not get, you know, be ready for a fight, uh, ready for for the battle. But Leinster took a different option. Leinster came in. I was waiting for Leinster to come in and then I looked, looked behind me and, and they came in a side, side entrance and they walked across the field. And, you know, you can't avoid it. You can avoid, obviously, the entrance. But once the first whistle goes... You know, you got to be ready for for warfare, particularly in a place like that. And I think maybe when let's look back on it, you know, maybe that was, a, was an error before the game because they never really brought any intensity. They never really uh, engaged too long, you know. And sometimes you can tactics and 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 patterns are are obviously really important, but um, it's that primal combat, that primal collision zone, um, and you live or die by the collisions. You know, you you win and and. I think Munster will will bring that. To be honest, I think Munster uh, will certainly bring that fight uh, and that intensity around the ball. It's just whether that's going to be enough because you know Toulon have 
phenomenal athletes, you know, and and uh, every one of their players, you know, is, is is extremely powerful, and that's going to be it's going to be hugely in, uh, interesting battle. And I think Leinster when they review it, they'll say, listen, we maybe got caught up in this whole uh, game plan, and we're going to take their line out, we're going to upset their line out, and they actually they they forgot the core element of the game, which is you know is that battle and physicality. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, I, it's not something I I thought about or heard about until now, Bernard. This um, this idea of walking in the side entrance rather than confronting the. You, you think of a boxer going into a into the ring, or whatever, and uh, it's like one boxer, you know. Coming up, coming up into the ring from the stage. It's part of the. It's unusual for too long, but they get massive, massive energy from it. You know, they, it's, it's, it's. I've never seen it anywhere else. The, obviously, fans wait for the team to arrive, but here it's just, it's just religious. Every every home game. Uh, but yesterday was off the scales because there were so many people. It was a beautiful day. There were so many Leinster fans in town around the port, and you're looking at those two long players, guys like Castro Giovanni. He was only a sub, and they're they're, they're loving it. You know, and and uh, they they were able to bring their game to a high point. Yesterday, the high point of their season so far, and Leinster, whatever the reason was, I'm not saying that was the reason, but something happened that Leinster weren't able to bring the intensity required to be competitive in the south of France, uh, you know, in, in a knockout stage Ryan Cup, uh, and they just didn't have that. And after that, you know, everything else you can blame, you can blame systems, but if you don't have that, you have nothing. Jerry, you were there too uh, at the game. Have you got a theory as to what happened to Leinster? Well, that's a very interesting point that Byrne makes, and I tend to agree with it. But both myself and himself and a few others were up in the corner of the stadium looking down uh, on the corridor that they formed for two, the Toulon players. And I, at the very same time, I turned around, and Leinster players were fighting across a very quiet ground, a very quiet pitch, almost like taking the tradesman's entrance. And I thought about that as well, and it was in stark contrast, if you remember, Bernard, with um, Munster back in Bordeaux in 2000 when they were in... Um, they went. They actually did their warm up right down at the very end of the pitch, where all the Toulouse fans were were congregated. Mick Galway taking the view, right? Let's face up. Let's face up to them now. And they they took all the booing and everything else and went around that they did their warm up. And they could have gone down to the Munster end of the pitch. They said no. They're going to warm up and right bang in front of the Toulouse fans and confront this and come face to face in terms terms with the conditions. And it was very like yesterday in terms of the weather and so forth. And um, they got that out of their system, so there was no bad. There was no. It was in stark contrast to the way I said that um, Toulouse were spooked by Tolman Park. Um, Munster didn't allow themselves to be spooked, and I think if if the same circumstances applied, Munster might well have walked through that corridor and derived some energy from the hostility. And uh, yeah, I think in hindsight, hindsight twenty twenty vision, but Leinster didn't bring the intensity required. And you know, first off. Rugby is a war. It is a battle. It is. It is gladiatorial. It is like two boxers enter the ring. It's fifteen boxers against fifteen boxers. And if you don't win the fight, you don't win the match. But Jerry, is there? Is this the kind of thing you did say? It's hindsight. There is this not the kind of thing that afterwards, if Leinster had won, we'd be sitting here saying, "Well, the calmness they showed under the pressure. You know, the zen-like calm of walking away through the tradesmen's entrance rather than confronting the fans was a stroke of genius by Matt O'Connor and his team." Yeah, perhaps, but then it didn't pan out like that. The result dictates everything, Owen. And you've got to say as well that in the first five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes, they were blown away by the intensity that um, Toulon brought to the occasion. And that set the tone for the match. And they were very fortunate still to be in the game at six all at half time. But yeah, of course, like frankly, you can go on about selections, you can go on about tactics, you can go on about everything else. But it's hard to see how Leinster would have won that match yesterday, given the way that Toulon bullied him in the collisions and bossed the breakdown and uh, then to confound all this of course Leinster had no platform really in the line out I mean they missed three line outs in the first half all of them key all of them would have given them some kind of footing in the game you, without that you don't have a footing and they were reduced to chucking a few balls at the front of the line out just to well, have any ball and they began playing the game in the wrong areas even still they were in the game at half time on the scoreboard if nowhere else but um, then championship minutes early in the second half Keane Healy loses the ball in contact too long go down the pitch and score a penalty and a try and frankly it felt like game over there and then because they had to get their nose in front it was going to be very difficult to fight their way back and uh, so proved I mean yeah I think you can say things like that in hindsight might have worked Zen like calmness but you don't really bring Zen like calmness to the south of France <laughs> in the yeah. final when you're facing Toulon you need more than Zen like calmness It's funny you both touched on the fact that Leinster failed to build any sort of pressure, put any sort of pressure on Toulon. And uh, I saw Keane Healy uh, did an interview with David Walsh in the Sunday Times the weekend where he talked about how he always feels that the Irish teams are going to be fitter. That's one thing that they have. They, they're fa- he feels they're fast and he always feels they're going to, going to outlast other teams. But that's almost that uh, edge and fitness, if it exists, Jerry, I guess is null and void if you don't do the right things and you don't actually build a platform to tire out the other team. 
Yeah, well, exactly. And yet they had them. The scrum went okay, in actual fact. You know, we, we all highlighted that that could be a key issue in the game. In actual, ironically, Leinster didn't have many issues there at all. I think they had six scrums in the match and got, and got their own ball back every time. Um, the breakdown was where they got a lot of damage done. You know, poachers, particularly Armitage, getting over the ball. That stopped any momentum they were trying to build in the game. Um, and they probably didn't get much joy out of Wayne Barnes there. You could argue a lot of cases it didn't look like the Toulouse player was supporting his own body weight and many times was off his feet and he still gave the penalty. I don't believe he's a good referee. I, I don't look forward to any games that he's in charge of. But again, I think that's a side issue to the overall. If you don't have a platform and Toulouse had all the platform. And the other thing as well is Leinster's defence was quite appalling by their standards 26 missed tackles players regularly bounced off the ball players who performed a week ago against Munster and looked like valid selections I'm thinking of Shane Jennings in particular it just didn't work for them and uh, even the midfield the same darcy O'Driscoll partnership I think missed seven tackles between them very unlike them but that was just it's, it's easy in the cheap seats mine it's easy talking about this in the studio the day after when there's 15 JCBs running at you at 100 miles an hour I wouldn't like to be down there frankly and Bernard you made the point there that uh, this is the best you've seen Toulon play in two years yeah, for sure. And uh, listen, the good teams come, they peak at, the, at this, this time of the season. And if you look at the top 14, you know, the, the Racings, the, uh, the Montpelliers, the, the Toulons, the Clermonts are, are all starting to be able to win away from home now, which which they weren't able to earlier on in the year. But Toulon, like Toulon, there was big question marks about Toulon this weekend, uh, this weekend, going into the game about, you know, um, whether they could actually beat Leinster and stab Mayol and, and like you've got guys of the quality they have you know and, and their abilities being questioned and they, they peaked and I'm not saying that listen that's only a tiny part of the whole preparation what side you come in into the enter the stadium whatever but Toulon were able to up their performance level you know for for a huge test which Leinster were um, going into the game and unfortunately Leinster just picked um, probably one of the most important day of the season to to have a have an off an off day and listen I agree with you completely the decision what side you enter is, is one of those things you do in your planning and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't whatever. but the, what it led to and what we saw on the field was a team who weren't able to um, step up to the place physically and even though Irish like listen Ireland were outpowered by France in in uh, in Paris but they were able to compete to a high enough level uh, and win enough collisions that they could actually win the game and that was the problem so like Leinster beat Bordeaux or, or Claremont in Bordeaux uh, in 2012 in the semi-final an epic game they lost a huge amount of collisions that day but they were able to win enough and they were in the fight for the full 80 minutes to, to win the game uh, and unfortunately for Leinster they weren't able to replicate that level of performance and that's that's why they'd be disappointed to be honest if they had played to their best and were beaten um, you'd say fair enough Toulon are, are, are valid champions uh, but they'd be so disappointed that they didn't really land the blow and, and give themselves the chance to win Jerry Ulster um it was just one of those sporting events that you watch, and you f- uh, I don't know how unfair you feel the red card necessarily was, but you certainly can't feel anything but sim- sympathy for the way Ulster went about their business and ultimately uh, lost that game. How severe a blow is that? Because they've been knocking on the door for a couple of years now. Are they the type of team, do you think, that c- could this actually break a side or would you see them going the other way maybe and this might threaten their resolve over the next year or two? Well, it's the end. It felt like a little bit of an end of an era over the weekend in many respects. The last Heineken Cup, as we know it, the uh, last Heineken Cup game for Leo Cullen and Brian O'Driscoll, um, and the last Heineken Cup games of the transport for with Ulster for Johan Muller, John Athoa, Tom Court, and it will be difficult. They're going to rebuild their tight five, and as Johan Muller said afterwards, that game will haunt them for the rest of their lives. It was a huge match for them. They built up hugely for it. I think they would have won, but for the sending off. The law state that the player underneath another player competing to the ball has to show a duty of care towards them. It doesn't take into account whether a player's actions are malicious or intentional, which frankly merely proves that the laws are an ass. That that was a ridiculous decision to get red card Jared Payne. He's not that type of player. He was clearly looking at the ball. Jerome Garces was um, influenced by the horrible nature of Alex Good's fall um, by the t- and the reviews and came to a decision that actually had no empathy for the game whatsoever. And once more, we were left with a match where the most influential figure in it was the referee, which happens far too often in the modern game, particularly there's so few good ones, least of all in France, as Bernard knows. Jérôme Garcès is probably the best in France, which tells you more about the standard of French refereeing than it does about Jérôme Garcès. And they did brilliantly to hang in there, but thereafter there was only ever really going to be one winner. Magnificent, epic fight that they put up. It, was, it wasn't enough. And I think it's going to scar them for sure. The only good thing for them with regard to the rest of this season 
is they've got some big fixtures. Derby's coming up. They've got Leinster to come to Raven Hill. And they will want to finish the, the Johan Muller era and the John Afoe era and the Tom Court era and this season with a trophy. So I think they might well be able to regroup for the Rabo Direct because of the Raven Hill factor and the way it's been replenished. But moving forward and competing against these Toulons and Claremont and Racing Metros with their enormous budgets. I mean, there's supposed to be a 10 million salary cap in France on playing budget. We all know that that's a laugh. There's no way Toulon can possibly be keeping within that when they've got at least 10 players and half a million a year. And I would say they're basically about operating at twice or more the budgets that, say, Ulster and Munster would have, whatever about Leinster, probably even twice Leinster's as well. And that's a, that shows you how difficult it's going to be. But David Humphreys has been a brilliant director of rugby forum who's made very astute signings and I think will continue to do so. And like I said, they do have that redeveloped Ravenhill factor with its 18,000 capacity, which will be full for the Leinster match. And I think they will regroup this season. But moving forward in future years, you'd have to wonder if they'll ever have as good a chance again. This is their first home quarter final since 1999 with a home semi-final to come and a final in Cardiff. They will, they will be doing well to ever map out a knockout route for themselves like that again. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and it's just Jerry touched on it there, Bernard. The teams in the semi-final, I mean, it looks for all the world like it could well be another too long Claremont uh, Heineken Cup final. We, we see money speaking louder than it ever has before in the European game. With that said, there were still three Irish teams in the quarterfinals. We've still got one into the semi-finals. In terms of actually punching above our weight or trying to stay with these big French teams, is there still a chance over the next few years in the in the new look European competition? Yeah, for sure. The Irish system is is still very healthy. I mean, uh, you know, we watched we watched Munster, um, you know, beat beat Toulouse, and, and we're you know we fancied Ulster, you know, to win in Ravenhill, and we thought Leinster had a chance. So you know, we, we could, could so easily have been you know, three teams in, in a semi final, and just I thought Ulster were very unlucky, you know, um, and uh, Ulster Ulster on and off the field are, are doing a huge amount of right. Um, Leinster have a a huge production line of players coming from you know from the schools and youth system, uh, which is going to you know guarantee them to be competitive long term because they're able to produce their own players and they they're obviously cheaper than than the foreign players that the French have to have to bring in and and you know Munster Munster just have you know huge history and uh, and and again you know huge support base so they're always going to be good so the, the Irish game will compete uh, for sure the English will, will compete with the French uh, it's it's the worry is that the Welsh and the Scots and the Italians. And then you know that how that affects the Irish. I think you know what I mean because uh, are we getting the quality uh, enough quality games in the Rabo except when we play each other um, that can help us step up. Like for example, you know Toulon, the two games they played going into uh, going into that game yesterday, they had a ding dong match against Toulouse uh, at home, and the week before they went to Claremont and nearly nearly beat them. So uh, whereas I think the Irish players only had. Only had one round. The, Leinster, the Irish players who played for uh, who played for Leinster didn't play the previous week, and then they played against Munster, which is obviously a high quality game. And then they're into into Heineken Cup level game. So we need a rabble. I think we need more depth in the rabble, and hopefully the new the, uh, the new qualification uh, requirements for, for the H for the Heineken Cup uh, or whatever it's going to be called, the, the Ruby Championship, uh, will help you know make that competition more important because in the top fourteen, you know, a lot of people in Ireland slide off top fourteen, but it's, it's very very tough competition, um, you know. And I, I I do think it will be a Toulon Claremont final um, again. But I think Ireland can compete for sure because Irish players want to play for for their provinces. Um, and uh, the RFU in France, you know, they've invested in facilities. So Leinster, phenomenal facility. Ulster just opened a new phenomenal facility. You know, and Munster are, are rebuilding a training base in, in Limerick, and three of them have a good stadium. You know, uh, we've. Irish coach Joe Schmidt wants his players playing in Ireland so Ireland Irish rugby is still in a very healthy spot Yeah well, this is something we'll probably come back to in due course but in the meantime great stuff thanks very much to Jerry and Bernard cheers guys Cheers man Thank you Great stuff from Jerry and Bernard there particularly uh, interesting was their, their take on Leinster's entrance to the stadium they refused to go into the they essentially went into the Coliseum through the side door I mean you're never going to you're mm. never going to slay anyone like that no I think if you're going to go into the Coliseum you got to you know walk in there with the belief that you're going to do the business in the Coliseum as a gladiator Yeah, you know I like the ex- example of you. I don't know how much you would read into this Ken well why I, do they uh... well I, I guess they just wanted to focus on their own game didn't want to go through the baying mob at the wasn't start. there an example recently of a team that wanted to England England wanted 
ones who players or, but that was their own fans that was a Twickenham yeah, yeah they wanted to rebuild their connection with Twickenham so they're going to park essentially a couple of hundred yards further back than usual then walk right through the car park yeah. where all the fans gather but in this case they have to walk through a, a, a very narrow alley between a really densely packed crowd of away fans not so not unlike what you see the guys doing on the Tour de France and the kind of mountain stages except instead of being two or three deep the crowd is 20 deep on either side yeah um, what's the worst that could happen in a situation like that? You get booed heavily by Toulon supporters. Yeah, maybe the players do have, were just do they have a bad reputation. The Toulon supporters? No, they have a reputation as being full throated. I don't think they're in any way dangerous do you individuals. Mean, like, you wouldn't say that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe the players just couldn't be bothered. Is that uh, looking like the, the Tour de France uh, comparison is interesting, Ken? Because I watched the Armstrong lie recently. I know you mm-hmm. did too. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of interesting aspects to it, but one of them I noticed is not telling anyone they didn't already anything they didn't already know. But when you they, there's amazing access to the 2009 comeback because that's what the movie was originally supposed to be by Alex Gibney before it turned out that that was a, hmm. it was a somewhat fraudulent nature to the uh, Lance Armstrong story, yeah, which yeah, Alex yeah. Gibney decided to open his eyes about a couple of years later. Yeah. Didn't bring out the original movie and then made a new one. But the access he has a lot of um, his cameras on bikes of the team as they're cycling uh, in, the, in that Tour de France in 2009. He's also got really good shots full stop of that. And the madness of the supporters mm. who just the presumably drunken yobs who just run along after them and yeah. are literally completely at one stage Alberto Contador is nearly punching them yeah. get away from me. I'm trying to cycle up this mm. I, I don't know how legitimate this climb is that I'm doing but I'm doing it and you're in my way. It's not yeah and, and it is amazing that you don't see collisions happening more often. I mean there, there was one with Lance Armstrong in 2003 when his handlebar hooked in someone's plastic bag that was sort of billowing the wind yeah. and, uh, and he went over. But uh, yeah, somehow they, they rarely seem to actually interfere with the riders. I suppose it must be one of those, you know, like why do birds uh, flying in a big murmuration not knock into each other? Did you enjoy the movie? I thought it was good, but I thought it was a bit too long. I mean, it's not that it's that long. It's about two two hours, five minutes, which is fine. But it was a little bit repetitive, I thought. Um Maybe over familiarity with the story. It could be a bit of over familiarity. The, the, the parts where I thought it flagged a bit were when they were going on and on about the, say, the USADA investigation and the different elements that we'd probably all in Ireland certainly be quite familiar with at this stage. Mm. Maybe it was still aimed at some people uh, worldwide or in America who, who are, mightn't have been as clued into it. But there were, uh, what I thought was fascinating, a couple of things. One was the behind the scenes footage of him being drug tested. Mm. He's being, at one stage, oh, yeah. the UCI turn up, and then 10 minutes later, the American anti doping agency turn up. Yeah. He's like, this is effing. Lance is totally abusing them. Totally yeah, abusing yeah. them. Then he's going, and he's going, no, we'll film this. Go on, we'll film it. You know, let, 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 let everyone see. And his kids are there and all the rest of it. And it's yeah. just a bizarre. These two bizarre people, scene. they sound like two sort of people in their late 50s, I imagine, a man and a woman with sort of Swiss or Austrian accents saying, you know, who obviously thinks this is completely improper and Lance is just there brazenly challenging them. Well, you know, it's my it's my test. You know, I want it filmed. Why didn't you film it? And the guy eventually says, well, only me and you are going to go into the bathroom, Lance. And he's like, oh, oh sure, okay. He's like, that's obvious. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. obvious. Well, it actually wasn't obvious the way you were going on. I thought that was what you were but leading up to. He was to. asked at one stage, so Alex Gibney gets a new interview with him, one new interview a little bit of behind the scenes footage when he's about to be interviewed by Oprah but then one fresh interview a few months after Oprah uh, and I don't know I, there was there's some interesting stuff in that one of the questions that Armstrong has asked by Gibney is they've got to the point where he's in Amer- he's in Europe it's 1994-95 Armstrong sees that everybody is doping and makes this decision this part of the story is well known he makes a decision somewhere along the line that I have to dope as well yeah. so we've got to that point in the head of Lance Armstrong and he, and he asks was that for you, a re- was that something you had to wrestle with, your conscience had to really wrestle with, or did you just think, it's part of the game, I have to do because, it? Yeah. And Armstrong says, the latter. Oh, the latter. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, the latter, yeah. I wasn't losing any sleep over it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is great. Because no, there is part of the revisionism that's like, oh, he just had to, he's just really reluctantly went into it. No, no, he's he a great man who had to wrestle with these yeah. demons for years. Anyway, we've moved completely off yeah. topic here. What's coming up in the football show? That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. 
Who would you rather see in the Champions League going Everton or Arsenal? Probably Arsenal. <laughs> Probably Arsenal, really? Why would you why would you say that? After nearly two decades of We'd have four Irish players playing in the Champions League. Oh, I just remember what Seamus Coleman did yesterday. Yeah, I'd like to see Seamus Coleman volley the ball along and head it along for 50 yards against Barcelona. Unbelievable what Seamus Coleman. I didn't even really think he was showing off. I thought, do you think, did you think that was showing off? Maybe yeah. the last bit. Small bit. When he, the first couple of, the though. first sort of volley and header, he was, you, the ball was in the air, he had to get it out of yeah. the danger zone. Thought maybe the third one was a little bit indulgent. But he still managed to accelerate away from the <laughs> Arsenal player, even though he was uh, keeping up the ball as he ran. Which I thought reflected badly on the quite, Arsenal. Quite I badly, I would think have it was Monreal. I'm not 100 sure, but look, I mean, I don't know. Everton are now in a position where they win all their matches. Now they've got much more difficult matches, but they've got to play, you know, Man City, Man United at home in their last uh, six games, I think, and could now have a. I mean, not only have a chance of getting to the Champions League, but of affecting the destination of the title. Yeah. And we'll talk a bit about Everton, Owen, is what I'm, is what I'm saying. And uh, also a couple of other things. Time now for US Murphy. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series. Brian Murphy, a phrase that you have brought up from time to time in this slot is move the needle when it comes to American sports. I want to ask personally for you, does the U.S. Masters move Brian Murphy's needle? Well, that's a deeply personal question, Owen. Uh, my needle. Are we going to talk about my needle, Owen? Yeah, Sounds so like that's where not. we're starting here, all right? <laughs> it's always good to talk needles, guys. Hey, we all have them, and we all have them. They're metaphorical, they're uh, physical, whatever, but yeah. Uh, you know what's funny? I do. You're talking to. You're sort of asking maybe the wrong guy in the sense that there's this one part of me that remains. Uh, there's like this little strain of me in capitalist America, which I love. I love capitalism. I love money. I love uh, cars and houses and everything like that. But there is a, a little part of me that is an old Bolshevik or a socialist in me. So I like to rail against the elitism mm. of Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters. There is there is a part of me that every now and then says, hey, you know what, this whole, you know, bow down to the masters because they're all rich guys who are titans of industry who deign to open their gate to us to let us in for one day or two days or three days or four days. To, there's a part of me that wants to tell them to take a long walk off a short pier, you know, and say like, hey, come on, man, give me the democracy of a United States Open where any man can stick a peg in the ground and try to win the national championship, or, as you guys have over there, the open championship, same deal. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that says that. Yes, give me the open championship. Give me the U.S. Open. That's democracy in action, the little man taking down the big man. That said... There's a larger part of me that's just a sucker for the romance and the drama and the theater that is the Masters. So, yeah, this is a great week for the sports fan. And, we, you know, we say it every year, and it bears repeating. The Masters uh, has this incredible pull on us and moves the needle, yes, because of the stage it's played on. Because of the – it's like seeing – uh, you know, a play at the Abbey Theater, I guess. Is that still going there on O'Connell Abbey Theater is still there, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm still staying, staying current. <laughs> staying current here. Or, or seeing a play on Broadway or seeing the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco or whatever. There's something about the physical venue of Augusta National and how well you get to know it through the years that makes it an irresistible lure. It televises so beautifully. They do an amazing job of groundskeeping there. To be in that place physically, it honestly feels like you're in a Japanese tea garden. It is so immaculate there. So, yes, I will be very excited. I'll have to stifle my Bolshevik, uh, my inner Bolshevik, and accept the elitism of the Masters 
and really enjoy this week of golf. How well do you know it, Brian? Have you been to a few of them? I've been to four, Owen, yeah. and, and I'd be proud of that. But unfortunately, in my sports media world, I know people that have been to 20, 30, 40 Masters. You know, Dan Jenkins, who we've talked about on this show, has been going to the Masters since the 50s. A good friend of mine named Art Spander, who you guys should have on the show because he's one of the great American veteran sports writers. He has been to every Masters since 1966. Mm. So those are the guys that I compare myself to and think, oh, my God, those are the legends. Now, I know by going to four, I'm four ahead of 99% of American sports fans. Well, certainly know, ahead so. of me and ahead of a lot of our listeners yeah, as well, Brian. Geez. So speak to so. us, the people who haven't been to any of them, about what it's like to attend so, these events. Okay, so I got to go to four, oh one, oh two, oh three, oh four. I got to see Tiger Woods win two Masters, which I guess when I get older will be something that I will truly, truly, truly appreciate. It's like seeing Babe Ruth hit a home run or George Best play soccer or something, you know? It's mm. like... Uh, one of these things where if you saw it, you will never see it the like again. So I got to see him win the 01 Masters. I was writing for the San Francisco Chronicle, and guys, that the 01 Master Owen was the one where he won his fourth straight major. And that was epic. He had just won you know, St. Andrews. He had won the PGA. He had won Pebble Beach, the U.S. Open the year before, and that was his fourth straight major. And It was the likes of which we hadn't seen since Bobby Jones and maybe the likes which we'd never see again. And I saw him, I was standing there at the 18th green, just feet away from him when he pulled his black Nike hat over his face and in a rare moment of, of vulnerability, let a, a lone tear roll down his cheek. It was really, for Tiger the robot, he was 25 years old when he did that. 25 years old when he did that. And it was an incredibly indelible moment. I'll never forget it. And, and to, to paint the picture of why that's the first image that comes to my mind is because of how green... Augusta National is, and all I remember is how green the fairways were and how green the trees were and how green, yes, the greens were. There's no brown patches. There's nothing that looks bad. It is lush. It is green. It is carpet-like, and yet they have the, the aesthetic sense to take the buildings that are there, the, what they call the cabins, the butler cabin and the other cabins where they give out the green jacket and where the members stay and where Dwight Eisenhower slept and all the guys who through the years have played Augusta National been members, they paint them wedding cake white, you know, typing paper white. And the contrast is so beautiful. It's this 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 bleach white cabins set against these green carpets. And it it, it works. Whatever you know, they work so hard on cultivating their image that it honestly, not to sound like just some, you know, sucker for Augusta, but it, it honestly it takes your breath away. It really does. You walk in there, and it just takes your breath away. You don't see places as pretty as that anywhere. You just don't. And the other thing is, you go to a U.S. Open or an Open Championship, there's tents everywhere. You know, there's, um, you know they got to have souvenir tents, or they got to have the big thing is corporate tents, you know, especially at the U.S. Open. Everybody's got a corporate tent, and it litters the landscape. Well, guess what? The Masters is so rich. Augusta National Golf Club is so wealthy that they don't need that. And you know famously through the years, they only have one or two sponsors, usually Coca-Cola and IBM and Exxon, and those are their only sponsors. And they don't get signage on the golf course, no signage anywhere. They get the TV commercials, which, as you know, are so spare, what, three or four minutes an hour? So we get so much golf as opposed to uh, a regular U.S. PGA Tour broadcast where they're cutting for commercial in between every shot. And you never see a corporate sign. You only see white scoreboards with the names of the players in green and their scores and simply painted above that in green are the words, the Masters, mm-hmm. and that's it. And it all works oh, in, in, in an in increasingly corporate landscape. It stands as this island of sort of just, I don't want to say exclusive, I guess exclusivity is the right word. So. I'm getting all excited just talking yeah. about it. I wish I was going. Well, all it's right? exciting, and I do like it. I think a lot of people would like that lack of uh, corporate mark on the tournament. Of course, you did mention the word exclusive, and we've talked in other years here, Brian, about how uh, slow Augusta have been to initially accept members, black members, uh, women members is an incredibly recent thing. But in terms of how you cover those kind of stories or how you cover anything to do with the Masters, is there anything explicitly said to you as a journalist when you're going there, but what you are supposed to write about, what you aren't supposed to write about, do you have to mind your P's and Q's lest you might lose accreditation for the following year? It's a great question because the answer is both yes and no. And the, the short answer is, are you ever told 
what you can write? And the answer is no. You're never told. You never said, hey, here at Augusta National, we prefer that you don't write about this. Or I happen to be covering the Masters when Martha Burke, I don't know if anybody remembers that name of the the women's rights activist yeah. who really tried single-handedly to rattle Augusta National's cage. She launched national um, interviews and campaigns in 2003 to try to get them to admit a woman member. And whether you want to you know, believe the club or not, she probably laid the groundwork for what happened last year, a short 10 years later, when Condi Rice, Condoleezza Rice, not only an, uh, a woman, but also an African-American woman, was accepted as a member, as was another woman, another woman executive. But the problem is, is that you're never told you can't write controversial things. However, there is, through word of mouth and through years of history, the unseen force of Augusta National hovering over you at all times. And you hear stories of people who have been quietly and effectively removed from the credential list. And it starts famously with a CBS TV broadcaster named Gary McCord. Some Irish golf fans may be familiar with him or they may not. He's a very colorful U.S. golf announcer. You know, he's not as famous as Johnny Miller or as Jim Nance. But he was a guy that's a regular part of the CBS broadcast. Well, about uh, 10, 15 years ago, he was doing his typically colorful broadcasting, and he said, oh, these greens are so slick, because they are very fast, and Augusta is always won and lost on the greens. Uh, so look for your hottest putters going into this tournament, or guys who putt well there. And uh, he said, oh, these greens are so slick, it's like they've been bikini waxed. Uh-oh, the Masters did not like that. They did not like the image of a woman getting bikini waxed, analogized to their putting greens. And then he said, these greens are so slick, they're taking the putters, they're taking golfers off these things in body bags. And that was just McCord being McCord. He was being colorful and descriptive. The Masters didn't, Augusta National Golf Club, they don't want to be thought of as a, they don't want anybody telling them that their uh, imagery is both bikini waxing and body bags, because guess what? Gary McCord has now been banned by Augusta National. And nobody ever said it. Nobody ever, there was never a press statement. There was never anything. They simply don't credential him. And guess what CBS did? Given the chance to stand by their man and defend him and say, well, guess what? We're not going to broadcast unless we can say what we want. They said, yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir. Great reading, can we come it? back yeah. and can we come back and sponsor it? Can we, can we broadcast again? The, the, the hold that Augusta National has over CBS, and by the way, they always do one-year deals with CBS. It's always one-year deals to keep everybody on their toes and make sure that CBS does everything sycophantic possible to, to make sure that Augusta National gets the most glowing reviews. Guys, I'm telling you, I don't know if you guys, what broadcasts you get over there, Owen, but if you hear David Faraday, and I say this with great love and admiration, I, know, I don't know, maybe you guys don't like Faraday, maybe you guys think he's a blowhard, he's now an American citizen, of course, but David Faraday is as irreverent as it gets over here in the States. He always says something funny and lowbrow, and he goes for potty humor sometimes, and he goes for, he's always just trying to be that guy in the bar who makes you laugh. When he does the Masters, it's like, it's like invasion of the body snatchers. Somebody has <laughs> taken Faraday and replaced him with this reverential, whispering guy. And you're like, wait a minute, that's Faraday? That's Fa-. He always has the 15th green. He's like, we're here at 15. Uh, here's Tiger Woods with his 30-footer. He's going to break right to left. And you're like, well, wait, wait, where's, where's the one-liner? Where's the joke? And he's like, oh, it's a crushing miss. He'll, he'll take his par and walk. He would have liked a birdie here. And you're like, wait a minute, that's Faraday? Come on, Faraday, be Faraday. And he's not. So these may be the ultimate example of the power Augusta National has. So I never took him on. I never did. Others did in the Martha Burke era. Many did. Famously, Christine Brennan of USA Today. She's a very vocal female columnist. It was a very funny story that when Martha Burke was doing her thing, Christine Brennan of USA Today, she picked up the baton, and she wrote all these columns saying, Augusta National is prehistoric and Neanderthal, and they've got to let women in. Everybody's like, ooh, are they going to credential Christine? Are they gonna? Well, they gave her a credential. They were trying to be above board on that one. And then every year, the, the chairman of Augusta National Golf Club holds a press conference. It's Billy Payne now. Back then, it was an old South Carolinian named Hootie Johnson. Yes, Hootie Johnson. And he was an 
old South Carolina guy, and he sat up there for his press conference. One day a year, you get your crack at him. And Christine Brennan was there in the front row, and it was Martha Burke at her peak. And she had her hand up in the air, and everybody in the press room sort of said, you know, this is Christine's fight. We're going to let her go. She's going to get the first question in. We kind of understood that the smackdown had to occur between Christine Brennan and Hootie Johnson. And it was being moderated by then-Vice Chairman Billy Payne. And she had her hand up in the press room, and Billy Payne pretended not to see her. And he just kept looking around the room saying, any questions, any questions? And she sat there with her arm as high as it could go, as high as it could go, like horse shack and welcome back, Cotter, for all you 70s American TV fans. And finally, Hootie Johnson and Mark Cannizzaro, my friend, and I laugh at this to this day. He patted Billy Payne on the forearm and he said, let her go, Billy. Let her go. And so she got, she got her. And he said, Christine, and she asked her question, why have you allowed no women members? And he, of course, gave a political answer that danced around it. But it was a legendary showdown of the power of Augusta National versus the rattling sabers of the press. And that's a long answer, but you got me yeah. going about that whole thing. So no, it's a constant specter there between the media and the club. I want to ask you something. Uh, ostensibly less important than the admittance of female members, and that is a tree, Brian. This is something else that Billy Payne has talked about a lot more recently. The Eisenhower tree, or Ike's tree, I think you mentioned President Eisenhower there, who used to have awful difficulties in the 17th, landing in and around that tree. I believe he wanted it removed at one point, uh, being a member of Augusta, but he didn't get his way there. The loss of the Eisenhower tree, uh, the background to this is there was an ice storm a while back, and uh, the tree had pretty bad damage and is now gone. The loss of the Eisenhower tree is difficult news to accept, says Chairman Billy Payne. We obtained opinions from the best arborists available and unfortunately were advised that no recovery was possible. Uh, quite a bit of gravitas attached to the removal of an inanimate object. Well, it's like I'm, I'm trying to think, like, you know, I made those analogies earlier to Abbey Theatre or the Golden Gate Bridge and all these things that are so iconic about physical venues that don't change through the years. So any change at Augusta National is a huge deal. And the Eisenhower tree is so famous mainly because of its name, the Eisenhower tree. And by the way, quick side anecdote, I had a a really esteemed golf friend who has been around the world and knows a lot of famous people and plays in these golf circles. He's a friend of mine here in San Francisco, and he's an older guy. He said to me once, he said, he said, you know, the media coverage wasn't that uh, uh, saturated back then. He said, but if America knew how much time Dwight Eisenhower spent playing golf at Augusta National when he was president, he said, they would have been rather alarmed. That's <laughs> what he said. I thought it was pretty funny. Ike had the press in his uh, pocket. Yeah, I'm going to go down there for about a week and just hit some balls around. So uh, he was, and that's another example of Augusta National's power. They like to say, they like to be the club that would reject a president's request. They're more powerful than the president is their message through their capitalist holdings and their accrued wealth and the fact that they all lead different corporations. They probably honestly feel like they are more powerful than the president, and they can tell the president what to do. And so when Dwight Eisenhower, there was a tree in the left side landing area of the 17th hole. So if your drive on 17, difficult par 4, and of course very climactic hole because it's the second to last hole in a, on a Sunday – if your drive leaks to the left, it could get caught either in a branch, it could get knocked down by a branch of Eisenhower tree, or famously it could be under the tree. Tiger Woods, a couple years ago, endured one of his injuries taking an awkward stance under the Eisenhower tree. He had to, because, he, because of the branches, he had to take an odd stance to try to reach the green. Actually strained his Achilles in one of his many, 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 many injuries. And we talked about Tiger last week, and I was wrong saying he'd play the Masters. He, he stunned everybody with that surgery news. But he, so, you know, is it, the interesting thing about the Eisenhower tree is, is it as, I would rate of the top five most famous things at Augusta National, I probably wouldn't put it in the top, maybe top three, I would say, obviously, um, Ray's Creek on number 12, the creek that fronts the 12th green, is more famous. I would say uh, the, the Amen Corner, 11, 12, 13, is more famous. I would say the, 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 the Hogan Bridge they walk over on the 13th, from the 13th tee to the 13th fairway, is more famous. I, I would say the Eisenhower Tree, as cool as it sounds and as iconic as it was because of its name, did not have as huge a role in Masters history as some of the other places I mentioned. 13 green, how many guys who've gone, gone for number 13 and two 
whether you know that kind of often defines a guy's glory. Fifteen, the par five, where Gene Saracen had his double eagle in 1935, most famous shot in golf history. So the Eisenhower tree, actually, really, other than the Tiger Woods injury, and I think one year when Jose Maria Olazabal won, he hit an incredible recovery shot from under those trees, under that tree. So I don't think it's actually as famous as it would be if, like, Ray's Creek dried up or something like that, or if an avalanche took out Ray's Creek. But it's the Eisenhower tree, and it was named after a president, and he was a member, and he always wanted it down, and they rejected him, and then the ice storm took it down. So the big question is, how are they going to replace it? And we'll find out what they do, and who knows? Maybe how they replace it will play a role in this year's Masters. But again, just all part of the lore, Owen. Brian, just lastly, we uh, t- we talked about Tiger Woods last week. You mentioned that 2011 injury, his latest injury, has now kept him out of the Masters, which is, I think, unfortunate for most people who are the golf fans or sports fans. Roy McIlroy was asked about this, and he kind of said, look, it's time for somebody to, else to stamp their authority on this. Nobody's been able to dominate and he, on the sport, really. Nobody's been able to dominate it like Tiger did. Now everyone's waiting for Rory to be that person. Will he take another giant step towards golf superstardom this weekend? Or if not... Who do you think is going to win the, the oh, tournament? Gosh. You know, I would love to see nothing more than Rory McIlroy do it. He's, I mean, he's, he, it, the sports world, the golf world's waiting to love him, and he's just stalled out of late. I mean, under the Australian Open was great, but there's just things about Rory in the last couple of years that have been uh, frustrating because you want him to be that guy to take that next step. We want golf is a sport that needs that icon, whether it's. You go all the way back from Ben Hogan to Arnold Palmer to Jack Nicholas to Greg Norman. I'll even throw in a Nick Faldo in there, you know, and then Tiger. You know, you want those number one guys that you can either love or hate, and Tiger provided us with that, and Rory just can't take that step. You know, I'm looking at the last three years, and Rory never finished top ten at any of those Masters. There's, you know, until he – I'm seeing guys like Adam Scott, who won it last year. He was also top ten in 2012 and 2011. I mean, that's a guy who plays well there. I'm seeing Jason Day, who was top five in 2013 and top two in 2011. You know, I'm seeing, uh, you know, I'm seeing Angel Cabrera, who was top ten. He was in a playoff last year, and he, was, he won it, and he also was top ten in, uh, in 2011. So, I mean, there are guys that play better there than Rory has. So I, I, I'm going to have to reject Rory's bid until he proves me wrong. And believe me, I, I've been wrong many times, but I'm going to flat out say no until he proves that he can handle 72 holes of Augusta National, which he almost did a couple years ago until that dreaded back nine on the Sunday. I'm dying. You know what I'm dying to do? You know who's playing great and who's played well there? But I could never do this because I would be just stoned to death in a public square. Go on. But you know, you know, who's, you know who's knocking on the door? Sergio Garcia. Sergio Garcia is knocking on the door, but I can't do it. I'm not going to take him. But watch out, okay? Watch it. Spaniards play well there, and he plays well there, and he's playing good. But I can't do that, Owen. I'm going to leave you with a good old-fashioned USA apple pie Chevrolet because I just think this guy is up for the moment and with Tiger gone. And even though he's 43 I think he wants to tie Tiger or with another Masters. I think Tiger has four, right? And Philly Mick, Phil Mickelson. That'll do it for us. Have man. what it takes. The veteran experience, and he's done it three times. I think he's ready for another one. Brian Murphy, enjoy the golf. Thank you. All the best, Owen. Have a good one. Murphy, your eyes lit up during that interview. I think you're... You- most definitely do want to go to Augusta now. Yeah, kind of do, yeah. Once you heard that the effect of Augusta National is to stop David Ferdy making jokes, you thought, well, it can't all be bad. Wow. I mean, if only if only more of the world were like Augusta National. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not. But uh, yeah, David Ferdy. There's a show, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the show on Satanta. Oh, I've, I've seen it. Have you? Yeah, so Satanta uh, taking the... It's it's the Golf Channel, I think, in the US. Yeah, it's some portions of the Golf Channel. Yeah, it's a good course. idea. So you get some stuff that otherwise you wouldn't be seeing. And it's, I don't know if you can get it online or not. So one of the shows is called, I'm pretty sure it's called Ferdy. Yeah. And it's David Ferdy. All it needed was an exclamation mark. David Ferdy, apparently in his house, or some, well, it's not it's in a studio, but it's a mock-up of some sort of house. I, I, the one part of it that sticks out in my mind, the most recent time I saw it, I think he was interviewing, was it Darren Clark? No, it could have been Gray McDowell. Anyway, it was. Uh, it's always good seeing those guys interviewed. Mm. At the end of it, he's walking out of his supposed house, and he gives a kiss to the. There's a, a framed photograph of his. I don't know if it's his real wife or if it's his TV persona wife. Yeah, but he's just like sort of winks at the camera, turns around, see you, honey. You know, gives a little kiss to the yeah. thing. 
turns out to him and just walks out. I'm thinking, what is this show exactly? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, one, it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it, like, I saw one about with uh, uh, Sergio Garcia. Yeah. And like that that was television of... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got it. Like, you know, it's like a former player, now journalist, oh, yeah. current player. Then he did one with like Donald Trump. And I saw one with Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> oh. I just like David Faraday talking to Samuel L. Jackson. It was just omni shambles, I believe is the word, Odd <laughs> omni shambles. We haven't had a chance to talk Gaelic football today after the uh, league yesterday, but the semi finals coming up next weekend, so we will chat. One of them is just a direct repeat of the Mayo Derry match yesterday. I mean, mm. Derry will presumably play their full team in the. League semi-final. Yes, you, you can chuck it down. <laughs> Goalie have survived, Don. Goalie have survived. Survived. We d- pulled off a miracle West Brom style. Cork of hammered Kerry. Dublin, amazing. Late drama. Jeremy Connolly outside the right boot. He's having a good couple of weeks. Jeremy Connolly's having a pretty good year so far. I think yeah. it's probably fair to say. So we'll talk loads more about that on Thursday's show. But in the meantime, stay... Or, Tune in again for Second Captains Football a little bit later on today. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. I'll try to stop naming our show now. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks again. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.